Hey, Bridgetown Church, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12 as we kick off our spring practice on simplicity. If you are new to our church or to gathering with us online, Bridgetown is built around the very simple idea of practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland. A core conviction of ours is that the way of Jesus is exactly what it sounds like. It's a way of life, not just a set of ideas that you believe in your mind or biblical theology, not just a list of do's and don'ts or ethics. It is a lifestyle that is based on that of Jesus himself. Jesus was a rabbi, a Hebrew word meaning teacher. And our relationship to Jesus is that of a student kind of enrolled in his master class of living in God's world. To that end, every few months, we take on a practice from the life and teachings of Jesus, and we experiment with it. In our working theory of change, practices, or what many call spiritual disciplines, are conduits for grace to flow into our life. They're how we kind of open up our mind and our body to God's empowering presence and cooperate with His work to heal and set us free and expand our soul into love. And all of the practices are utilitarian, meaning all of them, to a one, are a means to an end. The end is to be with Jesus and to become like Jesus and to do what he would do if he were us. Practices are not virtues. Simplicity, for example, is not a virtue. In fact, you can practice simplicity and remain an obsessive person or a control freak or unloving. Practices are just the means by which we say yes to Jesus' invitations to take the next step in our spiritual journey. That said, to start off, let's read from Jesus himself, Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out! Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Let me read that last line one more time. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. It all started with Freud. Freud was the first modern thinker to disagree with the Enlightenment's claim that humans are rational, the Cartesian kind of I think, therefore I am view of human nature. Freud said, not so fast. We're rational, yes, but we make all sorts of irrational decisions every single day. We're run by what he called our unconscious drives, a kind of automatic impulse in our body, what neuroscientists now call our animal brain or what the writers of the New Testament call our flesh. And Freud said that means we are far more vulnerable to manipulation from outside and self-deception from inside than any of us, at least in the West, want to believe. Ironically, as Freud was Jewish, the first power brokers to take his ideas seriously were the Nazis, who used his view of human nature to design their propaganda apparatus. Hitler was a master manipulator of people's unconscious drives, especially adept at stirring up the two most basic survival emotions, I want and I fear. But after the war, it was Freud's nephew, Edward Bernays, who was an intelligence officer in the American Army, who brought his uncle's ideas to Madison Avenue. He came home from the war with a question. If the Germans, if the Nazis in particular, use propaganda to shape Germans during the war, could we use the exact same tactics to shape Americans during the peace? 
He pitched his idea to business leaders and has since been called the father of American advertising. Now, you've likely never heard of Edward Bernays. That's on purpose. In his book entitled Propaganda, not joking, he said, quote, the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested largely by men we have never heard of. Now, I am not a conspiracy theorist at all, but it's an open secret that after the war, there was a shadow alliance between politicians in D.C., bankers on Wall Street, and the madmen of Madison Avenue to all work together to make Americans buy more stuff. Paul Mazur of Lehman Brothers said this, we must shift America from a needs culture to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. Man's desires must overshadow his needs marking the beginning of what is now called planned obsolescence, also known as why I want a new iPhone every single September. Take a look at this from Victor Lebo. This is from an article he wrote for the Journal of Retailing, not a popular level magazine, but for kind of professionals, in 1955. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfactions, our ego satisfactions in consumption. The measure of social status, of social acceptance, of prestige is now to be found in our consumptive patterns. The very meaning and significance of our lives today expressed in consumptive terms. The greater the pressures upon the individual to conform to safe and accepted social standards, the more does he tend to express his aspirations and his individuality in terms of what he wears, drives, eats, his home, his car, his pattern of food, his hobbies. We need things consumed, burned up, worn out, replaced, and discarded at an ever-increasing pace. I'm not making this up, by the way. We need to have people eat, drink, dress, ride, live with ever more complicated and therefore constantly more expensive consumption. And this is just now the air that we breathe. They say we see on average in our country 5,000 advertisements a day, the vast majority of which are aimed not at our prefrontal cortex, but at our unconscious drives. Combine that with Facebook and Google and what Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism in her seminal book on big data, Silicon Valley and others are mining our every Google search, Zoom call, email, listening in if the room is true to our conversation while we're scrolling on Instagram, all to better target our unconscious drives and manipulate us to buy things or think things or vote for things. And it's working. Listen to a few basic stats. The average American home, not for the rich, average, medium of the bell curve, has over 300,000 items in it. 
We consume twice as much material goods as we did just 50 years ago. The average home has tripled in size in the same time frame. And still, 25% of people with two-car garages don't have room to park either car inside due to clutter. And another 32% only have room for one car. Plus, one recent study found there is 7.3 square feet of storage unit space for every single American. We could literally sleep our entire nation in our storage units. Not to mention the debt, the average American, again, average is in $15,000 in credit card debt, and not to mention the havoc it's wreaking on our planet or the poor in the developing world. In an interview with Ari Shapiro of NPR, the executive Steve Howard of IKEA said we have reached peak stuff in the West. One of the gut-level defense mechanisms that people often have, myself included, when we talk about simplicity or money in general is, well, isn't this just kind of for rich people or for middle class and up people? And the answer to that is kind of yes. The poor don't call it simple living, they just call it living, but kind of no. All of the data, and my antidotal experience is 100% in line with this, says that peak stuff is a problem across the socioeconomic spectrum in our nation. There's a rich version of it, which is often far more simple. One recent kind of critic of minimalism called it aspirational austerity, often a sign of your sophistication, like you've transcended the need to go shopping or something. There's a middle-class version, and there is a working-class version as well. And wherever you fall on that spectrum, for all of our materialism, are we any happier? All of the research says no. In fact, well-being has been on the decline in our country since 1952. In their book, Your Money, Your Life, the authors plot happiness and materialism on a bell curve and argue, based on the data, that, as, that happiness does go up as income goes up, as people come out of poverty into what we would basically call a middle-class life. The Nobel Peace Prize winning Daniel Kahneman in a famous kind of study done put the number for a family of four in the U.S. at $70,000 a year. Until you reach that number, every year as you make more money, you feel more happy. You feel more content and more at peace. But once you hit that number, at first there's a kind of a flattening of the curve, and then all the data says happiness starts to decline. It actually starts to go down as you make more money. Robert C. Roberts, the ethicist from Baylor and expert on Freud, said, quote, upward mobility often ends not in satisfaction and peace, but in exhaustion, disappointment, and emptiness. Or in the words of the notorious B.I.G., mo money, mo problem. Say it with me. The sociologist Robert Wethno, who found that people worry about money no matter how much money they make, said, quote, we live in a materialist culture and we want money and possessions and very few people have heard a powerful voice telling them to resist those impulses or how to resist those impulses. And then he said this, organized religion has not done a good job of challenging people to examine their lifestyles. We in the church often talk about tithing or what to do with 10% of our income. 
but then have a tendency to say nothing about the other 90. I kind of came up in a tradition where it was basically tithe and don't go into debt, but whatever is left after that is kind of your business. It has nothing to do with God. You do your own thing. When we adopt that mentality, we become easy prey for the enemy's entrance into our heart. Richard Foster, in his book on simplicity, called consumerism a rival religious philosophy about what constitutes blessedness, and said, we in the West are guinea pigs in one huge economic experiment in consumption. We now have more than enough data to conclude that, shocker, Jesus was right all along. Greed or more stuff than we need, it just does not lead to the good life. Instead, when the external pull of propaganda comes together with the internal push of greed, the result is a sabotage of the very life that we all crave. We live with a nagging sense that we never have enough. It's like that Rockefeller line at time. At the time, he was the wealthiest man in the world, oil tycoon. And when he was asked by a journalist, how much money is enough? His iconic line was just a little bit more. We all feel like that. We just never have enough hours in the day or things in our closet or stuff on our house or money in our bank account. We just always need a little bit more. Contentment is always just out there beyond our reach. And we feel torn in multiple directions, tired from low-grade fatigue, behind on everything, beset by constant distraction. And although we love God, or at least we want to love God in our heart, we often spend far more time thinking about our clothing, what to wear that day, or a new car that we want, or a broken appliance that we need to fix, than we do about God's presence. We all know that the cliche, you know, the most important things in life aren't things. We all know that is true, and yet still we fall for the lie of advertising that more is better, and we get sucked into the vicious cycle of desire, get, rinse, and repeat. So, is there a practice from the way of Jesus that could set our heart free from what Jesus called the deceitfulness of wealth? the false promise that money and stuff can give us security and satisfaction in our heart, to get free of that endless cycle of desire and instead to find contentment, margin, peace, joy, and life in the kingdom with Jesus. Yes, there is, and it is the practice of simplicity. Before we define it, let me show you where it comes from in Scripture. Take one more look, if you have your Bible there with you, at Jesus' teaching in Luke 12, which is Luke's kind of summary of Jesus' take on money and possessions. It's so good, the plan is to spend the next few weeks in it. Again, verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Notice the person is attempting to get Jesus to endorse his greed in the name of what is socially acceptable and the norm. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? That's not my job. Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard. Notice the double warning to drive the point home. Against all kinds of greed, there's more than one. There's generational differences in greed, right? Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. 
The word greed there in the text is pleonexia, which can be translated covetousness, if you have another translation. One lexicon defines it as an insatiable desire and lust for more and more stuff. What lust is to sexuality, greed is to materialism. And Jesus is not saying that stuff is bad per se. He's not a Gnostic or feel guilt and shame if you want more things. He's just saying that's not where the good life is found. And then he told them this parable. Keep reading. The ground of a certain rich man, I love that it could be anyone, yielded an abundant harvest. Notice the ground yielded not the rich man yielded. It was the byproduct of God's generosity, rain and sun, and most likely, and this is the kind of hidden idea here, the hard work of laborers in the field. And all of that wealth, the idea is, was a gift from God. 17, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. It's lost a little bit in translation, but in Greek, the man is talking to himself and he's using the word I, myself, over and over. It's Jesus' humorous way of saying the man is totally self-absorbed. What shall I do with all of my extra money? Now, remember, this is an ancient agrarian communal society, not a modern knowledge economy, individualist in big government society. That is a rhetorical question in Jesus' day. The answer is, what should I do with my extra money? Share it with the poor. This is long before tax-based wealth redistribution. There was an expectation, both theologically and socially, on the rich to care for the poor. But instead, he said, 18, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns, notice the level of waste, and build bigger ones. And there I will store all of my surplus grain. In our language, I will sell my business, diversify my portfolio, and live off the dividends. And I'll say to myself, 19, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take like easy, move to Portland, eat, drink, and be merry. Note the shift in the man's heart from contribution through work to consumption through hedonism. Very subtle, but very important. But God said to him, you fool, and fool in the New Testament in Greek isn't just a moral word, it's also an intellectual word. It can be translated stupid. Like, that's just not an intelligent way to live. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. And the language here is a little bit ambiguous, but most likely he's just saying life is short, like your end is coming. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Again, rhetorical question, the answer is no one. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things, extra stuff for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Jesus' basic point is that the good life is not found in surplus wealth or early retirement or a life of hedonism, which is pretty much the Portland dream, but in a life of self-giving love with God and others in the kingdom. And Jesus said something to this effect all over his teachings. Scholars estimate that around 25% of Jesus' teachings are on the subject of money and possessions. Can you imagine if every fourth teaching at Bridgetown Church was on money? Um, Our attendance would plummet very fast. But Jesus was not raising money for his nonprofit. He was just very aware of the soul's inner dynamic. We consume things, and then things consume our heart. He wasn't after his followers' money, but after our heart. For example, Jesus said things like this, It is more blessed to give than to receive. 
The word blessed is makarios in Greek. A more literal reading is happier. It's more happier. A happier life is the byproduct of giving, not getting in Jesus' mind. A claim which, by the way, social scientists have found to be true in study after study. Again, shocking. Or take a look at Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Note, not you should not serve, or hey, it's not a great idea, think about another option, but you cannot. It's not you, no can do. Money will take over your heart unless you take an active stand against its gravitational pull. Or here's Jesus in Matthew 19. Truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that would have sounded incredulous to a first century Jew, which is why next line, again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Here, in Jesus' mind, wealth is an obstacle to the good life, not a boon. It's theoretically possible to follow Jesus into the kingdom and carry wealth with you if you give most of it away, and we see that in the New Testament, but it's very hard to do and rare. Notice that Jesus' teachings, and that's just a sampling, on money and stuff do not take the form of a command much less a list of rules. Jesus does not tell you how many pairs of shoes it's okay to own or how many square feet per person in your family is above bar or what temperature to set the heat at in winter. Rather, his teachings are statements about reality, about the way life actually works. And the New Testament writers all continue Jesus' line of thought. Take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, which is what our giving liturgy every Sunday is based on. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Man, is that true. As a pastor, I see it on a sad but regular basis. Or here's a very similar statement from Hebrews 13. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you never will I forsake you. Over and over again, Jesus and the writers of the New Testament and all the spiritual masters of church history all agree that the good life is not found in a new car or a dream home or fine dining or early retirement. And they call us instead to a lifestyle of simple living, radical generosity, grateful kind of joy in the ordinary pleasures of life, and above all, a deep contentment in God. Now, it took me years to take Jesus and the New Testament writers seriously. I need to be very honest with you as we open a conversation about money. For most of my life, up until, I don't know, five or six years ago, I thought that Jesus' teachings, I never would have said this in public, but in private, I thought that Jesus' teachings sounded horrible. 
If you were to ask me, I would say, yes, they are right, as in like the moral barometer, but they did not sound good to me or like the best way to live. And the very fact that I would separate right from good or the best way to live in my mind shows you just how deep the lie was in my body. And this is really embarrassing to admit, this next part, but it wasn't until I stumbled into kind of some of the bloggers from the minimalism movement, more on that in a minute, which is not even Christian per se, that I started to actually seriously consider Jesus' claim that owning less stuff could actually lead me to a happier or a better life. And I did not even get into that for Jesus' reasons that had nothing to do at the beginning with my life with Jesus. I am a longtime fan of architecture and modernist design, and we had redone a modernist home, and people would come over, and it was very Spartan, and a number of my friends said, oh, are you a minimalist? Because we had so few things in the house, which likely was more the byproduct of my perfectionism than it was of any kind of virtue. And that started me reading and researching, and it was a fascinating, like, whole new worldview for me. And some of that early movement was um, started by followers of Jesus, so there's Christian overtones through all of it. But it's not even a Christian thing per se. That brought me then to the very ancient, very historic practice from the way of Jesus of simplicity. And that's embarrassing for me to admit because I was quicker to trust some amateur bloggers than I was to trust Jesus himself. By the mercy of God, I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful that God's defining trait is compassion, that God met me where I was at, uh, which is what he does with all of us, right? Wherever you're at, even if it's not where you should be or I should be, that's where we meet with God. And by his mercy, I began to realize that what Jesus had been saying and the way of Jesus had been saying for millennia actually was true, that more stuff is often less peace, less contentment, less generosity, less joy, less time for relationships, less interior life of the soul, most less of what God has for you in the kingdom, and that actually less stuff is more of all of the things that we ache for. But all that to say, I have not at all arrived. It's scary to teach on simplicity. One, because whenever pastors talk about money, it gets really weird really fast for a lot of people. It doesn't have to, but a lot of people have emotional baggage with that. And all of us have some kind of emotional attachment to our money. And so it's really easy to stoke people's ire. And I do ask that you uh, not go easy on me, but show me grace. I will do my very best to pastor you well, along with our team, through this practice. This will not devolve into a fundraising campaign for our church or some kind of neo-legalism. But two, it's a little scary because I open myself up to scrutiny, right? Do I practice what I preach or not? And this is not an area where I can yet say, like, follow me as I follow Christ in the sense of, like, I'm at the center of the bullseye. Not at all. I can say... Um, I think with credibility that my wife, T, and I have been practicing our version of simplicity, which is very urban middle class, I'm the first to admit that, for the last half of a decade. And here's all I can say, just from my own kind of inside-out experience. I have a long ways to go, and a long ways to go in my trust of Jesus, in my embodiment of His vision. But I am more content more grateful, more in the moment, and more generous than I've ever been in my entire life. And I'm very excited to introduce you to 
all that I've been learning over the last number of years and to a very ancient practice that prior to recent church history in Protestantism, really, was thought of as a core practice from the way of Jesus, and that is the practice of simplicity. Now, simplicity goes by a few other names. The monks for centuries called it frugality, but that word has lost all of its positive connotations in English. We're not about to run a practice called frugality. The original Latin word was frux, which was the word for fruit. And so a frugal life was a fruitful life. In fact, it's related to the word for joy or to enjoy something, the simple pleasures of life. In the modern era, since it doesn't really mean that in English anymore, it's been called simplicity or simple living, and then more recently, it's been called minimalism, though that moniker is used outside of the way of Jesus for a larger social trend that often has nothing to do at all with Jesus. Now, what is simplicity or minimalism or whatever you want to call it? Well, let's start first with what it is not. First, it is not a style of architecture or design. I need to say that because a lot of people hear minimalism in particular and equate it with ultra-modern, high-end, kind of monochrome design with no kids or family or mess in it at all. And while it is tough to square simplicity with, you know, I don't know, nouveau rich, gaudy Italian villa or something, or a home that is just like over, like flowing with clutter or something like that. It's not a design style. It, you, can, you can practice the way of simplicity in a modernist home or a kinfolk bohemian chic home or Portland craftsman or like, you know, teenager Star Wars meets Stranger Things, whatever your thing is. It's not a genre of design. Secondly, it's not organizing. In fact, a lot of organizing is an attempt to make room for more stuff, and the end result is we are more attached to our things, not less. I love that Kondo has become a verb, thanks to Marie Kondo's book, The Magic Art of Tidying Up, which is one of the best-selling books of the last decade. But holding each item you own in your hand and asking yourself, does this spark joy? That's just solid advice for pretty much anybody in the Western or the developed world. It's a great place to start but it is a far cry from the practice of simplicity in the way of Jesus. Third, it's not a fad. Some version of simplicity, by whatever name you call it, has been around in every era and in every major religion or worldview, from Jesus in the New Testament to Cicero in Rome to the Stoics in Greece to Buddha in the East to St. Francis in medieval Catholicism to the Quakers in early America who basically, by the way, started modern design. There are waves of emphasis on it that come up as a counterbalance to an era of excess. Marie Kondo's book, for example, blew up after the tsunami in Japan. The blogger kind of minimalism thing of the last decade started right after the Great Recession of 2008. St. Francis was when he was disinherited by his father, Quakerism to the kind of excess of the aristocracy and Anglicanism a century or two ago. But it is not a fad. So. What is it? Well, Richard Foster defines it as, quote, an inward reality of single-hearted focus upon God and his kingdom, which results in an outward lifestyle of modesty, openness, and unpretentiousness, love that word, and which disciplines our hunger for status, glamour, and luxury. Joshua Becker defines it as the intentional promotion of the things we most value and the removal of anything that distracts us from them. 
Jan Johnson, the spiritual director, as intentionally arranging our life around God. I would define it as limiting the number of our possessions, expenses, activities, and social obligations to a level where we are free to live joyfully in the kingdom with Jesus. We've done a lot of work over the last year or two on the role of margin in our spiritual formation and how hurry and busyness and overload all crowd out the soul's kind of inner growth into love and joy and peace. Simplicity is the number one way that we shape our life to create margin to receive the love of God and then give that love to other people. And as we start our practice, I want you just to view it as a short-term experiment in living. You don't need to sell everything that you own on day one, though Jesus does call some people to do that. All we're asking you to do is start where you're at, not where you feel like you should be. Again, guilt and shame are not helpful here. We're just asking you to experiment over the next season and see for yourself if Jesus was right. We'll give you all sorts of ideas, including in a few weeks, minimizing your entire apartment or home. It's actually a great time for that right now. Most of our teachings will start with Jesus in scripture, then have a little bit of church history and this, the practice of simplicity down through the millennia, and then end with a few best practices from the minimalism movement. But it's often, so we have all of that coming for you, but it's often best to follow the inner stirrings of your own heart. The Spirit could move in your desire to any number of things. Buy only consumables for a month or a period of time. Just groceries and cleaning supplies or something like that. Or sell your car and get out of debt. Or not buy any new clothes for X number of months. Or eat out less once a week or once a month or even less than that. Whatever it is. My point is whenever you feel an idea stirring that is self-generated or more importantly Spirit-generated in your heart, as you go, just trust Jesus, follow his lead in your heart and just experiment with it for a while. Just see, you don't have to make a lifetime commitment and see if after a period of time, you are not better or happier in the language of Jesus. That said, let me offer a pastoral word before we kick off our practice. Due to COVID-19, this practice is very different from any that we've done before. In kind of normal life, unquote, the practices of Jesus function as counter habits to the gravitational pull of the world. For example, in a world of noise and crowds and distraction, we practice silence and solitude. In a world of isolationism and individualism, we practice community. In a world of gluttony and um, slavery to desire and hedonism, we practice fasting and so on and so forth. Under that rubric, Simplicity is a kind of resistance against the greed and excess and waste and environmental havoc that is all around us in, quote, digital capitalism. It's kind of like guerrilla warfare against digital capitalism. But due to COVID-19, many of us are in a season of involuntary simplicity, whether we want to be or not. You're without a job. Or like me and many others, you took a pay cut or a reduction in your income. Or you still have your income and money to spare, but you need to share it with those in need, either in our church or our city or just in your relational circle, so that, as Paul said, there might be equality. And none of us are out right now eating and drinking and living that Portland life, not a one. 
So this time around, our practice is less about how do we fight the world and a little bit more about how do we make peace and harmonize with what is. How do we find joy and contentment and peace in like this season that we're in and not get sucked into the anger and angst that is all around us? And the stay home order is an incredible opportunity. I know I keep saying this, but this is a once in a lifetime opportunity for spiritual formation. It's a hard time for our nation. It's a hard time for our church. But man, what a chance for us to grow and to mature into people of love. And this is just a great time, um, not just to go through all of our, our home and our stuff and de-own. It's a great time for that. We're all at home right now. There's never been better motivation to clean out your closet or whatever it is. But even more so, it's a great time to take a step back from our life and kind of look at it as an observer and almost reboot the system and ask, like, what stays, what goes? When we come back, whether that's in a month or two or whenever this is all over, what goes back to, quote, normal as soon as possible? And in what way do we live by a very different metric of success? In South Korea, which just started to open back up a week or two ago, the hashtag revenge shopping is trending as people rush out to make up for all that lost time of materialism. What if we were to go in the opposite direction? In the direction not of the mall, but of the monastery, away from greed and more stuff than we need and kind of hedonism without limits and toward quiet and margin and relationships and living simply to share with those that are in need in our church for this season, however long it lasts, and a real intent focus of our heart on Jesus and the kingdom. That would be a very different way to return. That said, our practice for the week ahead is all up at practicingtheway.org simplicity. Week one is a very easy exercise. It's basically our entire practice in miniature. The idea is to go through your home and find something to get rid of, just to throw away or sell or ideally to give away to somebody in need. And ideally, something that you don't need that's kind of just more clutter in your life, literal or figurative, but that you have some level, doesn't have to be really high, but some level of emotional attachment to. You can do this with one item or a hundred. You can do it on a single item or a set, like your DVD collection or your library or something like that. It's totally up to you. And our, our desire is just to see you, for, for you to just watch Jesus' teachings come alive in your heart and get a taste for what it feels like from the inside to live in alignment with Jesus' vision of human flourishing. We also have recommended reading on the site. We recommend that you read, if you want, kind of, there's no extra credit or anything, just if you want to go deeper, we recommend that you read one book on simplicity from the way of Jesus. We recommend either The Freedom of Simplicity by Richard Foster or Abundant Simplicity by Jan Johnson. And then one book from the minimalism kind of literature. We recommend The More of Less by Joshua Becker, who is kind of out in the secular world, but he's a former pastor, follower of Jesus guy. As always, all of our practices are invitational. There is no pressure for you to do anything. We are not here to coerce or control you. We're just here to pass on Jesus' statements about reality. And in that same spirit, we make invitations, you make decisions. Let's just take a moment and pray.
Jesus, we thank you that the good life is not for sale. It doesn't require a certain level of education or a certain level of prestige from our university or an income bracket or a square footage number or a credit card. That we have an open door to enter into the good life of the kingdom with you and the Father and the Spirit every moment of every day. And we ask, Jesus, that you would take us over the next few months as a church and one-on-one deeper into the life of the kingdom. I pray that a month or two from now, after we've sat with your teachings and gone through our closet and our stuff and done some of the hard work, I pray that we would come out more free, more content, more at peace, more present to the moment, more generous with our money, with our time, more alive in the kingdom of God than ever before. Come and do a work, Jesus, that we can't do, but you can. Come and have your way in our heart. 